Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 7, if you're not already there. Sorry for that little whistle thing. That was, that was, that was weird. I, I can't whistle that way with my, with my fingers and stuff to save my life, but every once in a while I say it while I'm talking. And Lord, as we come to your word, we ask for your blessing and for your wisdom. We ask that your spirit would open our eyes and open our ears to understand and to believe what we see. We thank you for your graciousness to us, for the preservation of your word over time. And in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Well, I'm going to continue to give you the the, the basic foundation of, of Hebrews as we go because it's so important. Hebrews 7, like all the book of Hebrews, is intended to exalt the name of Jesus Christ, his person, his work, Jesus as God, Jesus as Savior, Jesus as the High Priest, Jesus as the Sacrifice, uh, Jesus as the the uh, the Son of God who has made perfect atonement for our sins. In Hebrews chapter seven, we meet uh, a man named Melchizedek, who uh, goes all the way back within the the history of Israel to Genesis chapter fourteen. Genesis chapter 14, 18 through 20 says this, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. He blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all. This is all the Bible says about Melchizedek historically. This is the one place that we see Melchizedek. And in fact, two of these three verses are Melchizedek speaking. The only information that we have about the man himself is found in Genesis 14, 18. We're told that he is the king of Salem. We're told he is a priest of God most high. It's not very much information at all. He appears on the scene just kind of suddenly out of nowhere because we're not expecting him. And as soon as this little episode with Abram is done, Melchizedek's gone. And historically, he, he's no longer there. And yet, Melchizedek occupies such a, an important part of God's eternal purpose of salvation that a thousand years after Abraham encountered him, King David wrote this in Psalm 110. And I'll, I'll give you the proper translation. I'm, I'm lobbying to get Bibles. If, 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 if you have Lord in all caps in your Bible, it's the name Yahweh. It's not the word the Lord. It's the name Yahweh. And I don't, I'm, I'm just looking forward to the day when an English Bible will just give us the name Yahweh like it gives us the name David or, or Jonah. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We, we know from verse 1 because it's repeated in the New Testament, in the Gospels, and in, uh, in Acts, and in Paul's letters, that this is a reference to Jesus. So Yahweh says to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, prophetically, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. 
you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek has not appeared anywhere within the history of Israel since Genesis 14. Moses mentions him in Genesis 14, and, and there is simply not a mention of him in the law. If you have Bible software, don't take my word for it. Go search for his name. You'll find him in Genesis 14. You'll find him in Psalm 110, and you'll find him in the book of Hebrews. It's an amazing thing. So why is Melchizedek used in Hebrews? Well, it's, it's because the recipients of this letter, as I've, I've tried to remind you every week, are being tempted to abandon the truth of the gospel and salvation through Jesus Christ and the authority of Jesus for their old religion, for the practices and the rites and the rituals that belong to the temple. We couldn't say today, we can't say today, they couldn't say then. This is just a matter of personal opinion. This is just a matter of, of preference. They just were looking for a different flavor. This is a matter of heaven and hell. We saw that in Hebrews chapter 6. The old religion remained very attractive for some, for various reasons. For some, it was simply what was familiar. It's what they were raised with. It was traditional. It was the religion of their parents and grandparents. And so it had this emotional meaning to it. Uh, For others... Uh, they just thought that there would be less persecution against them by being, in a sense, Orthodox Jews than by being Christians. Uh, but, but we know, too, that what was called Judaism at the time was the Old Testament reduced to human tradition by the Pharisees. God had called his people. It wasn't Jesus who invented, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's spoken by the Lord through Moses to his people. You are to love your God with everything that you are. The Pharisees had removed all of that personal investment and reduced it to a list of do's and don'ts. Just want you to come and push the right buttons. And so the writer of Hebrews says, okay, you're interested in traditions, you're interested in what the history said and what the history was, and you want to be able to go back and say, we're not interested in something that's brand spanking new, we want something with some weight behind it. He says, okay, let's go back then. Let's go back beyond Moses. Let's go back to Abraham. Let's go back to the patriarch of the patriarchs, the one with whom Israel begins. So he says in the first few verses here in Hebrews 7, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Melchizedek is given to us here to provide an Old Testament, and an early Old Testament, by the way, picture of Christ, and to seal it within the history of Israel. How does he do that? Well, he's called the King of Righteousness, That's what the name Melchizedek means. It means king of righteousness. Jesus in Jeremiah 23, 6 is called Yahweh, 
our righteousness. Righteousness is the, is the possession of God. It's the sole possession of God. He alone is righteous. He is the standard of all righteousness. He reigns in righteousness. He rules in righteousness. He judges in righteousness. Acts 3.14 calls Jesus the holy and righteous one. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that Jesus became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So Jesus is the true king of righteousness. And God planted Melchizedek in Abraham's path as the king of Salem, as the priest of the Most High God, and, and ensured that he would have the name Melchizedek. So that 2,000 years later, in the book of Hebrews, as, as Jewish Christians were saying, maybe we should go back, that there would be a reason for them to stay the course with Christ. He set that up for them, and he set it up for us. Melchizedek is also called the, the king of Salem, that is the king of peace. Jesus is called the prince of peace. He is the king of peace. Now, this is odd. You know, king of righteousness, king of uprightness, king of holiness, you kind of have that idea but king of peace is a little odd because you don't associate peace with kings. You, with kings, you, you think about those who have power and strength to take land and conquer enemies and dominate others by the force of their actions. Kings are not, in general, people of peace. But Jesus is the prince of peace. He's the king of peace, which makes him utterly unique among kings. Now, here's the thing, Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 38, Jesus says, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. That's a pretty blunt statement. That's an unpopular statement with our world. Our world hates the idea that Jesus would have come to, to do anything but sing Kumbaya, hold everybody's hand, pat them on the head, and make them feel good about themselves. And we understand that the world feels that way. Sadly, many who claim to be Christians have the same conviction. Jesus is going to do nothing but bring peace. Everything is good. Everybody is happy. It's, it's like the song in that theological movie, Everything is Awesome. Everything is just awesome all the time. And Jesus says, don't think that I came to bring peace. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. What does he mean by that? He says, for I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He says, look, when, when I come as Lord and Savior and I call a man to follow me, I call a woman to follow me and they come after me, they're going to have to leave what's behind. They're going to have to leave friends and family who don't believe. And that's going to cause conflict. That's going to cause conflict. It's caused conflict in our family. It's caused conflict in virtually every family where Christ has been believed by someone. There's separation. There's conflict. And then he goes on to, to even go deeper. And he says in verses 37 and 38, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves or he who does not take his cross, his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Jesus didn't come to make our lives heaven on earth. Jesus came to lead us out of hell on earth. 
by giving us his name, by giving us his righteousness, by causing us to be born again, by making us disciples who follow hard after him. There's only one way to have peace through Christ, and that's to have peace in Christ. And there, there can't be peace between us as Christians if we call upon the name Jesus and those who reject him. There can, there can be friendliness. There can be civility. I don't mean that we have to be antagonistic. But here's the thing. We're not the ones generally being antagonistic. It's, it's the others. In Grace's letters, she's written about some of the people that she's there with. And, and there are some other people who are believers, but there are people who are very much not believers. And I'm sure that they have a little bit of a, of a general guideline. While you're here, don't talk about politics. Don't talk about religion. Don't do it. You've got to work together as a team. You've got to function as a team. And even the world understands, you know, in polite company, you don't talk about politics or religion. However, Christians can expect peace because Jesus is the king of peace. He's the prince of peace. And he said to his disciples, this is in John chapter 14, verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. A good example of brothers and sisters in Christ who are experiencing the turmoil of the world and the peace of the Lord are are those believers in Chengdu, China, who who have only done what the what the early church did, and that is said we will not bow our knee and worship to the government. We will pay our taxes. We will obey the laws. We will honor the king because that's what we're commanded to do by our greater king. And the truth is that genuine Christians throughout history have always been the best citizens. They've been the most reliable. They've been the hardest working. They've been the most generous. But the totalitarian regime in China says no, We're going to break with you over that. And we're coming to totalitarianism in the United States too. Right now in Canada, if uh, if we were in Canada, if we were in Winnipeg or Toronto and I preached in Romans 1 on the issue of homosexuality, I could be arrested for hate speech. That's coming to the United States. I think we're foolish if we don't recognize that that wave is coming this way. For the world and for the wicked, Jesus is the righteous judge for his people Those who love him and trust him and follow him, he is the prince of peace. We also see that that Melchizedek and therefore Jesus has an eternal priesthood. Verse 3 says that Melchizedek is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but he is made like the Son of God and remains uh, remains a priest perpetually. Um, He is not the Son of God. Now, there are... If, if you've read and maybe your study Bible notes or other places, there are two broad theories about Melchizedek. There's a theory that says he is a historical figure. He is a man who Abraham encountered who is then used as an example of Jesus, as Joseph was, as Daniel was, as David was. There's another side that says Melchizedek, because of what is said here, is actually a pre-incarnate visit by Jesus himself. Usually when we see that happen in the Old Testament, 
the, the, the individual is called the angel of the Lord. And there are times when it's very clear that that's God speaking. And there are people who believe that Melchizedek is, is like that. I don't think it's like that. It ultimately doesn't really matter. You can believe whatever you want to on that. The point isn't to focus on Melchizedek. The point is to say that he was made like the Son of God who is eternal, whose priesthood is perpetual and unending. We're, we're going to spend time here the, here next week, but in Hebrews 27-23, the writer says, The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing but Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. So many priests prevented by death, constant need for replacement. Jesus, as a priest in the order of Melchizedek, one priest never dies. He continues on, it says in verse 16, because of the power of an indestructible life. Melchizedek was greater than Levi, and that's a picture of who Jesus is. Uh, reading on in verse 4, the writer says, Observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, that's Melchizedek, collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to, and, and so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him so all of this kind of boils down to the greater blesses the lesser Melchizedek blessed Abraham and all of Abraham's descendants the lesser brings offerings to the greater Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek and because Abraham did all of his descendants paid a tithe to Melchizedek and so Melchizedek is greater than Levi. Now, if you're like me, you would look at that and say, that seems like a stretch. And, you know, if these were human words, if, if, if we were studying the writings of uh, Augustine or Irenaeus or Polycarp, I'd say, yeah, that's a stretch. I think you're really pulling hard on Scripture there to get it to work. But we're looking at words given to us by the Spirit of God and preserved through us by the Spirit of God through time. We have to remember that fatherhood, headship, is extremely important in Scripture. Romans 5 says that all who are in Adam are guilty of Adam's sin and are dead in sin because we descended from Adam. It also says that all who are in Christ, the only way to be in Christ is by grace through faith, all who are in Christ are now of Christ and have the life and the righteousness of Christ. Headship is very important. That's why the, the, the most common phrase used to describe Christians in the epistles is those who are in Christ. It's not that God gives you something by yourself. It's that he gives it to you as you are in Christ, which means you can never lose it because Jesus can never lose it. So by the same token, 
Abraham is, is the head of his family, quite literally the patriarch of all the patriarchs of Israel. So everybody in Abraham honored Melchizedek's priesthood when he paid that tithe. Now, none of this is said so that we would exalt Melchizedek, but that we would exalt Christ. And that's why we are told that there has to be another priest. In verse 11, the writer says, Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? Remember who he's talking to. He's speaking to Jewish Christians who are being tempted to go back to the Levitical system, to the Aaronic priesthood. And he says, you need to understand that there is a greater priesthood that was predicted by the Lord in Genesis 14. And God raised up another priest, Jesus Christ, after the order, according to the order of Melchizedek, not according to the order of Aaron. We saw that in Psalm 110.4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Why would God have said through David a thousand years before Jesus was ever born, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek and not a priest forever according to the order of Aaron? Because the Levitical law could not save anybody. That priesthood could not help anybody. That's what verse 11 says. If perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, that is, if justification of sinners, if rebirth, if conversion could take place through the Old Testament law, God would not have raised up a different kind of priest. God doesn't do things just to do them. God doesn't get bored and decide to break up the monotony by shifting things around. He doesn't do that. He's got a purpose for what he does. His intention from eternity past was to actually justify and transform sinners. The the Levitical law, the Levitical priesthood could not do that. And frankly, nobody in Israel should have been surprised because David sealed this in Psalm 110.4. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's not just the priesthood that changes, the law changes. Verses 12 and 13 and 14 Say, for when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes, a place, uh, it takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. Priests only exist to carry out religious laws. They have no other function. That's all they do. Whether, whether they're Roman Catholic priests, Episcopal priests, whether they are Anglican priests, whether they are Eastern Orthodox priests, whether they're Buddhist priests, Hindu priests, Jainistic priests, Shinto priests, uh, the priests of Baal, the priests of Molech, the only purpose that they have is to carry out the laws of that religious system. It's the only reason they exist. Well, since the Lord was determined to raise up another priest, Jesus, in another priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek, there had to be a change in the religious law. You couldn't have a priest from a different priesthood exercising the same law. And so the law of Moses is not destroyed. It's not broken. It's not set aside. 
Jesus never broke the law. He happily violated the traditions of the Pharisees. But he never broke the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. He perfected the law. He satisfied its requirements. And by doing that, he instituted grace. And instituting grace and satisfying the law utterly brings about a change in the way that the law is instituted in our lives. The the morality of the law still exists. But the power of the law has changed. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, that's our flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. The law could not condemn sin in the flesh. What the law could do was condemn sin, right? The law could say, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, these are the penalties, this is what happens, these are the consequences of those sins. The law could condemn in that sense, but the law could not condemn sin in your flesh. It couldn't put it to death. In fact, the opposite happened. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, he says, "I, I didn't know what it meant to covet. Until the law said, you shall not covet. And when the law said, you shall not covet, coveting was awakened in me. So the law actually serves the reverse purpose. It's not there to remove sin. It's there to identify sin, to put a name on it, to put a label on it. And so there has to be a different law. And we have a different law. That's the law of the Spirit of God. Romans 8, 4 says, that Jesus did this, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit of God. Along with that different law comes a different qualification for the priesthood. The Levitical priesthood was essentially a family business. If you're a male um, born to the tribe of Levi, in the family of Aaron, and you meet the basic physical qualifications, which are pretty simple. You're not missing a finger or a hand. You don't have crushed body parts. You're not blind. You're not missing an eye. If that's true, if you're basically healthy and whole, you're a priest. It didn't require anything else, nothing at all. In fact, you don't have to look very far to find corruption in the priesthood. In, uh, in, in Leviticus chapter 10, the law is still being given. It is still coming down from the Lord. And Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, offer strange fire before the Lord. God had said, this is how you come to me. When you come to me, you come in this way. You come with these sacrifices. You come with this attitude. You come in this manner. And Nadab and Abihu said, no, we'll come the way we want to. And God put them to death. And he put them to death by sending fire down from heaven to burn them alive. He said, you want fire? You want strange fire? I'll give you fire. It's not the fire you want. Moving on from that, in 1 Samuel, the sons of the high priest Eli, Hophni and Phinehas are called worthless men who did not know the Lord. They're priests who are worthless men who don't know the Lord and who are priests and and who are fine serving in that role. They, They weren't because God punished them for their sin. 
but there is no moral qualification to step in. They're actually killed by God because of their sins, which included defiling the sacrifices and committing fornication with the women who served around the tabernacle. In fact, when Eli hears what they're doing, he, he, he says to them, my sons, what you're doing is not good. You should stop that. It's like, really? Nothing firmer than that? But the scripture says that they did not listen to the voice of their father because God wanted them dead. He had, they defended him. They were going to die. Eli could have given them a, a two-hour Billy Sunday type of revival meeting and they were not going to listen because God was not going to allow them to repent. They were going to die for their sins and they did die. So the only thing required for a Levitical priesthood was physical descent. It's all that, all that required. But Jesus' priesthood is not based on physical descent. Looking in verse 15, it's clearer still if or since is the, the idea here. It's clearer still since another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek who has not become such on the basis of a law of physical requirement but according to the power of an indestructible life, according to his eternal nature as God and his resurrection from the dead. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, that makes Jesus' priesthood utterly unique to himself. So the the point of these verses, we're not going to move on this morning, but the the point of of these first 17 verses is, is actually very simple. The Levitical priesthood was created by God. It was ordained by God, established by God, and set in place as a temporary measure to cover sin until the fullness of time. And in the fullness of time, with the death and resurrection of the Son of God under a different priesthood, then the Levitical priesthood was brought to an end, brought to a close, and replaced with a priesthood that can actually accomplish what God had intended to accomplish through his son. Why would anybody turn away from that? That's what the writer of Hebrews wants the original recipients and wants us to be thinking. Why would anybody turn away from this? Why would anybody look at the enormity of what Jesus Christ did and then say, but I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to the old ways. I'm going to go back to childhood religion. There's hope in no one but Christ. And in Christ, there's every hope. It's a perfect hope. I love what's said in in verse 24 and 25. You know, it says there that Jesus continues forever and holds his priesthood permanently. And therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In Roman Catholicism and in, uh, in other so-called Christian traditions, people are told to pray to saints. They're told to pray to saints. And the Roman Catholic view is, is so arrogant and blasphemous, it's shocking that they don't get it. What, what they say is, well, sure, you could pray to Jesus, but don't you think that Jesus' mother would have greater pull with him i mean really Dwayne, if you want me to do something you could ask me but you know if you get my mom to ask me how can i say no to my mom it's what they say 
I think it was this week, in fact, that Pope Francis called Mary the, the original influencer. She's the highest influencer because she influences God. No, she doesn't. God influences himself. Jesus is interceding for you right now. Right now as I'm speaking, as we're gathered together in Jesus' name, all of us who have Jesus as our Savior, all of us who have trusted him, he's praying for you right now. And he's praying for the fullness of his work to be applied in your life by the Holy Spirit. The Father doesn't say no to the Son. And the Spirit doesn't fail to carry it out. He is praying you home right now. He is lifting you up right now. I've told the story before about friends that we had in in, uh, our church in California. Mike was a a weightlifter, um, a a private investigator, private eye in, in Detroit. He was a hard man. He was a big man, a strong man, uh, very profane. Somehow the Lord got a hold of his life, and changed him, converted him. And uh, that happened fairly late. He was in his 40s or 50s when that happened. When we met him in, in California, not too long after we met them, a, a year or two perhaps, uh, Mike was diagnosed with esophageal cancer, and so they removed his esophagus. They opened it up like they would for open heart surgery, and then they removed his esophagus, and they pulled his stomach up, and they stitched it to the bottom of his throat. And uh, while he was in the hospital recovering from that, his mother died. They sent him home with five different opiate painkillers, five of them. And he was on them in a pretty heavy way. And... Just a few weeks after he got home, we, uh, we found out that his two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter had gotten into her mom's Prozac and ate a whole bottle and died. Um, we worked through that. I took Mike to a Christian counselor every week for a while because he was just trying to deal with all of this. I didn't know that he had gone to his doctor for refills on the pain meds, now we're three months, four months into this process. And the doctor had said, no, you're three or four months out. You don't need it anymore, and stopped them. He just stopped the meds. So as Mike and I were on the freeway coming back from one of his appointments, all of a sudden he went into this opiate withdrawal, curled up in a, in a ball on the front seat of my car, sobbing and shaking, and I had no idea what to do. And, and he was just crying out, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't hold on to God. I can't hold on to the Lord in all of this. And I said to him, Jesus is hanging on to you. When you can't get a grip on him, he doesn't let go of you. See, that's the hope that we have because Jesus is interceding for us all the time. He's not going to let go of you. He's not going to abandon you. The Spirit of God has you in His hands. The Sovereign Lord is praying for you nonstop. You don't know what to pray for. He does. You don't know how you're going to get through today or tomorrow. He does. You don't know what the future holds. He does. And He is praying you home. Kevin, you want to get mom? 
celebrating the, the Lord's table together is really a, a wonderful way to acknowledge and celebrate these truths. The, this is taken from the London Baptist Confession of 1689. God was pleased in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain Jesus Christ his only begotten son, according to the covenant made between them to be the mediator between God, holy God, and sinful man. The father gave the elect to the son in eternity past through the death and resurrection of Christ in history and the perfect work of the Holy Spirit in time. God's people are redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified in him, reconciled to our God. Jesus gladly undertook his sacrificial work. He was born under the law and perfectly fulfilled it, demonstrating his own holiness and righteousness. He suffered the penalty for sin that we deserved, the very same penalty the the lost face at this very moment. He was made sin and a curse for us. He was crucified and buried and did not decay, but was raised on the third day with the same body that was crucified and buried. He ascended into heaven where he ceaselessly intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father, carrying out the fulfillment of his priestly work. By the gracious gift of faith, We who believe have called upon the name of Jesus Christ to save our souls. By the gracious work of the Holy Spirit, we who believe have been born again, converted, transformed, so that we will live for his glory and not our own comfort or pleasure. The Lord's table is not restricted by anything but the faith of the person. If your faith is in Jesus Christ alone and your life is committed to him for his daily use and glory, then the Lord's table is for you. And as, as you hold those elements in your hand, there's a reminder of how intimate it is and how personal it is. It's not that this event happened 2,000 years ago in a faraway place with people that we don't understand, and now we have this system, and we, we stand at a distance and watch the machine work. When you hold the, the, the bread and the cup in your hand. Jesus himself said, this is my body, which is given for you. This is my blood of the new covenant. You can't have greater intimacy personally with the Lord Jesus Christ than in this moment of communion, where you say, he did this for me. Not not for some group, for me. He loved me. He was gracious to me. He's with me now. If he gave himself for me then, he's with me now. If he loved me then, he loves me now and will not let go of me now, no matter what I face, no matter what I I endure. Father, we ask that you would...